Thanks for joining us for the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, deputy editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's new section on security and privacy in the digital age. We think the most important and most interesting part of the cybersecurity story is the people behind the keyboard. So on the Cybersecurity Podcast, we'll interview key leaders and thinkers in the field, going beyond the headlines to talk about some of the most pressing trends and newest ideas. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Angela McKay. She is the director of the Government Security Policy and Strategy Team within Trustworthy Computing at Microsoft. We'll talk about everything from international strategy to privacy issues. But first, we're joined by Alana Breutman. She's a partner in Greenberg Traurig's Government Law and Policy Practice. She's also a Cybersecurity Fellow at New America. Previously, she served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Manufacturing and Industrial-Based Policy at the Department of Defense, as well as on Capitol Hill as an advisor on various technology and defense issues. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Good morning. So you recently wrote a report for New America entitled Smart Cyber Legislation. So are you accusing Congress of all places of not having smart legislation? Oh boy, I don't want to be in that position. I think what Congress has finally done, which is passing cyber legislation, the information sharing legislation in both the Senate and the House, is fantastic. I worked for years trying to get something passed uh, in an omnibus cyber bill. So this is a move forward. What I wrote about was what more could be done once we see this issue settled. So what more can be done? What are the key takeaways from your report? Well, what I always saw is that good cybersecurity is essentially private sector driven. That's both for practical and political reasons. Politically, you just can't uh, demand that companies do more in terms of their business costs unless you're a special buyer like a defense department. And as a, a practical matter, cybersecurity changes constantly. It's very difficult for legislation to keep up. But I do think that Congress can do some things to spur the private market. So what I really wrote about was insurance, because even outside of cybersecurity, insurance has always been an incredible driver of safety measures, whether it came to automobiles, planes, all sorts of safety measures. And it's no different in cybersecurity. But Congress can help, even in that private sector. So what is cybersecurity insurance? Maybe let's start there. And I mean, what's the problem with using just traditional insurance to encompass these cybersecurity-specific issues? Sure. Um, well, Sony found what the problem was when they couldn't get their uh, general liability insurance to cover what happened to them. Because the way that the predicates are written for general liability insurance just doesn't work in a cyber context. Something may not actually be stolen. Private data may simply be copied, but it's the copying of that that it, that causes the same problem and the same cost that in the physical world would come from traditional theft. So companies really are advised to get cyber insurance because no one is immune from being hacked, mm -hmm. being fished, botnetted, etc. But I mean, how do you measure the fallout from a cyber attack in concrete dollar figures? I mean, it seems like some of these things, especially when it comes to reputational fallout, for instance, of having your data breached, could be pretty ambiguous and also just widespread and go into a lot of different areas. Well, you're absolutely spot on to the challenge to the cyber insurance market. Just to give two numbers, the traditional insurance market just in the U.S. is about $270 billion. The cyber insurance market, people predict, is going to grow by the end of the year to about a billion and a half to two billion globally. So clearly, the demand is still nascent because I think it's not fully understood. And 
from the insurance company's perspective, it is very difficult to do both the measuring of the risk per sector. So how likely is it that a uh, bank is going to get hit versus a retail company and the measurement of the cost, which is the full fallout? The leading cyber insurance companies, I think, are starting to do uh, a better job than they had a couple of years ago in starting to measure that. Um, What are some of the ways that they're doing that that works? They're they're really looking at precedents uh, of what happens. So when it's this sort of company, what kind of legal costs do they endure? What kind of business costs do they have to carry in order to resuscitate their reputation? What are the technology costs to get in, to root out the problems, to rebuild, to do something for their customers? And as we start to see more lawsuits out of these hacks, then insurance companies can start to understand what is the likelihood that somebody will get sued and what is the nature of the payout. So the idea is the the more uh, breaches we have, actually the more data we have to draw from. Of course, but it's, it's the breaches, but then also that it's actually shared. Mm-hmm. Not everything is shared publicly, even though 47 of the 50 states have data breach requirements. That in itself may not be shared more broadly with insurance companies or throughout the sectors, which is why what Congress is doing now is definitely a positive step. In terms of information sharing, you mean? Absolutely. Information sharing is key. It's sharing the information and making sure that it's as timely as possible because the nature of the attacks change very quickly. It's interesting. And so do you have any specific case studies or, or in terms of Sony, you mentioned, um, you know, that was a precedent and they found out that they, you know, their general insurance wouldn't cover this, but you know, not specific hack. I mean, insurance would cover a nation state targeting your, your company. And so what are some, do you have any numbers that are attached to what they would have maybe had coverage for? So it's interesting. I don't have numbers, but it, again, a, a very interesting point about nation state. As as we all know, it's very difficult to, to understand the attribution in a cybersecurity breach. So I think that we shouldn't focus so much on who did it because both for technical reasons and for political reasons, that may not become, or diplomatic reasons, that may not become entirely clear. But insurance companies are certainly concerned that if there is a breach that goes, that's enormous, that hits an entire infrastructure, for example, throughout, um, let's say, the whole eastern seaboard grid goes down, that cost could be like the cost of addressing post 9-11, which is why I suggested in the report that Congress pass a cyber tria I'll step back and and give the acronyms. TRIA was the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act that after 9-11 was passed to provide a secondary, a government-backed secondary insurance in case of that kind of terrorist attack so that insurance companies wouldn't go bankrupt in trying to cover the losses. What I suggest is that while TRIA could apply to cybersecurity, because it's difficult to know who did it, we should really write a cyber TRIA that is based on the quality and quantity of the losses in the event so that cyber insurance companies could be a little bit more forward-leaning because they know they have a backstop in case of such enormous event. Do you think the flip side of this in terms of insurance is not just you know how they can recoup their damages, but also how can they do better to improve cybersecurity? Just- well, that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm such a fan of cyber insurance, because as with any insurance company, excuse me, any insurance coverage, in order to get covered, you have to show what you do, right? You're not, for health insurance, you're not a smoker, or how many tickets have you had for your auto insurance? It's the same exact thing. You want cyber insurance. What are the things that you're doing prophylactically mm-hmm. to minimize the risk to your company? So just by signing on, I think companies start to do better. Moreover, a good cyber insurance company, in case of a breach, can come in there with a whole protocol of what needs to be done right away so that the cost of that breach is minimized because you're just on it immediately. 
So you're talking about, in essence, the insurance market creates good incentives for companies. But exactly. the challenge is, at least right now, less than half of Fortune 500 and even less of uh, middle and small size companies have any kind of coverage in this space. So besides the congressional side, what are other incentives that will lead companies to make this kind of investment, to buy this kind of coverage? Sure. Well, I think that even Congress could play a role here, but certainly federal or state agencies that procure from businesses could play a role by incentivizing businesses to either take certain cyber measures or even have cyber insurance. Again, there's a precedent outside of cyber where insurance is required for procurement decisions. I tend to not want to, I tend to like the carrot better than the stick. So I'd, I tend to prefer not to punish companies for not having something. So I, I think that procurement decisions ought to create a carrot for a better you know, procurement score if you have cyber insurance, for example. It's interesting because, I mean, the bill that you're talking about, the information sharing bill, has steered clear of mandates. And it sounds like you wouldn't necessarily support you know, some bill in Congress mandating that everybody have cyber insurance. But I mean, what are some of the other things that could play in terms of media coverage or public awareness? Um, you mentioned in your report that cyber risk is not a kitchen table issue yet for voters. So I mean, when is everybody finally going to realize that this is a thing that they also need to, to get on board with? This is where I think where a real economic incentive makes sense, because for especially for small companies that are facing thin margins to add another cost. They know how to measure the cost today of doing something. They don't know how to measure the cost of the risk that they see. So procurement incentives, tax incentives, I think are all really great uh, positives. I mean, I uh, when I was in Congress, I lived through a number of cybersecurity legislation battles and mandates just were never going to get passed. So I, I don't see... So it's the political feasibility of it as opposed to the necessity of it. Because you know, when we look at other forms of insurance, the parallels you were making, um, I'm mandated to have car insurance. Uh, the building that we're in is mandated to have fire insurance. Why is this different? Or is it just we can't pass it if it's that way? It's two things. One is certainly the political reality. Let's just get something done that we can get done. And the other is that cybersecurity is changing rapidly. So defining exactly what it is in that mandate is very difficult. So legislation or government or executive branch action that can set up the right incentives for the private sector is a better way to go. Interesting. So speaking of mandates in Congress, we're here in the wake of the Paris attacks, and already we're seeing lawmakers on Capitol Hill talk about how there should be you know, more access to encrypted data, even though at this point, at least, we don't know exactly what methods the attackers use to communicate. What do you make of the motion on this and this pendulum that seems to swing between national security and privacy and consumer security? It's, it is it is quite chaotic right now. I do think that the attack in Paris changed the dialogue uh, quite a bit on a number of issues, including encryption. About a month before that, the Court of Justice in Europe, of course, issued an opinion that would invalidate the safe harbor agreement between the U.S. and Europe, pursuant to which companies can share uh, private data across the Atlantic. And if that is not fixed by a new cyber, uh, excuse me, safe harbor agreement, it'll make it very difficult. Uh, it'll put new strains on the cross-Atlantic trade and commerce. So on the one hand, the safe harbor decision sent a message to American lawmakers, you need to create more privacy protections. On the other hand, the Paris attack, if it, if it does turn out that the lack of being able to get into the encrypted devices was a, a, a real cause in, 
in this horrific attack, that will swing the pendulum completely the other mm -hmm. way. And cybersecurity and privacy, while I don't think that they have to exist in opposition, are often put in opposition politically. So um, the next couple of weeks, really understanding what happened in Paris, how was this effectuated, I think will tell us a lot. I mean, there are those who say that having giving law enforcement intelligence agencies that kind of access would put consumers, everybody's personal security and privacy at risk. You know, there are a lot of technologists and privacy advocates and tech companies who are making that case. Um, but then you have, as you mentioned, something horrific happen in in Paris that changes the debate of this. But on the policy issue itself, what do you what do you think of this? Do you think that there is um, a need to create a mechanism for tech companies to be able to turn over data that's encrypted? What we need to do is just be very clear on what it is, what is the right precedent for for handing over data, and what kind of data is really necessary to try to really narrow, not to try to have too broad of a debate, but really narrowly focus on what is it that could be helpful helpful in a legitimate law enforcement counterterrorism kind of context. Mm -hmm. One of the um, interesting things you bring to this discussion is a background in working not just on Capitol Hill, but in the Pentagon, and um, particularly in industrial-based policy. And the Pentagon is becoming a bigger buyer of cybersecurity and all its meaning, but also the Pentagon has a reputation and a history of not being the most efficient buyer of things, whether it is toilets or software. So how should the Pentagon be buying cybersecurity? Thanks. Uh, it, it is very difficult for DOD in general, with all of its agencies and the services, to buy very quickly. There are a lot of good reasons for that, a lot of taxpayer protection, classified information protection. But it's difficult to turn that train. And so I know that Secretary Carter, Under Secretary Kendall, are focusing on finding ways that they already have or maybe asking Congress for some new authority so they could buy some things quickly because cybersecurity you've got to do a couple of things you've got to do you've got to buy quickly you've got to be able to invest or buy without taking the intellectual property away from the commercial company those are two big things and Export controls is another big thing. Not everything has to be controlled so that it doesn't go outside of the U.S., and yet that's the in instinct for DOD is to control it. But if it over-controls, it will lose access to a lot of good commercial technology because the companies need a broader market than just DOD. Mm -hmm. And there have been a lot of efforts recently to connect with Silicon Valley, and um, that's been a priority from the top of the Pentagon to go out west in particular and talk to tech companies and figure out these quicker ways to get technology into the Pentagon. But do you think that there's a trust issue here post-Snowden or just a hesitance about working with the government? And I mean, how can you overcome that? We had a breakfast recently with uh, Terry Halverson, the chief information officer for DOD, who said, uh, I spend $36.8 billion a year and that buys a lot of potential trust. So, I mean, is that all about the money or what are some other ways that you can kind of get the two sides of the country to work together? You know, DOD is a tremendous customer that a lot of companies will want, but there are two issues. I think the biggest issue is actually for DOD to be able to work quickly and not hamper companies with intellectual property restrictions and export control restrictions. Really, I think that's the number one issue. Because How much of that requires a change in DOD policy versus legislation? I think actually they have a lot of the tools. There may be some changes that could be helpful, but I think it's any bureaucracy, and DOD is probably the largest in our government, any bureaucracy ends up stuck in the way it has always done things because you never get fired for saying no. 
you get fired for taking a risk. So it's more of a culture change. It's a culture change. It's, you know, uh, the secretary has set up a, a small office in Silicon Valley, DIUX. That office right now doesn't have a procurement authority, but it's doing those kinds of things. We've had something known as um, JUONS in the past, which you know, I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's essentially a faster buying authority that was put in place because of Afghanistan and some needs there. DOD has these tools. It just needs to activate them to be able to procure faster. Well, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Alana, for joining us. Up next, we have Angela McKay. She leads Microsoft's public policy work on cybersecurity, cloud security, and norms. She's also Microsoft's point of contact for the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee, which provides the President of the United States with recommendations on how to maintain reliable and secure communications. Before joining Microsoft in 2008, she worked at Booz Allen Hamilton on cybersecurity policy and at Bell South Telecommunications as an engineer. Thanks so much for joining us, Angela. Thank you for having me. So our last interview dealt with finding ways to incentivize both Congress and the private sector to do more on cybersecurity. And you've been described to me as a, quote, one-woman change agent working to get different sectors up to par in this area. So one woman change agent. Explain to us, what are the key incentives we need to put into place? Oh, well, that's a that's an interesting description, but um, a very positive one. And I would say uh, thank you for that. I think probably the description there is I spend a fair amount of my time talking about the cybersecurity challenge, but not focusing just on the challenge, but focusing on what organizations can do, whether that is Congress, the administration and the equities of the different departments and agencies, or the private sector. And I think there may be a characterization there where I I don't just focus on the problem, but also about the opportunity space. So I think a couple of things particularly are changing the dynamics domestically, and it does look a little bit different internationally. And so maybe I'll describe a little bit of both. So in terms of the private sector series of actions here domestically, um, I think one of the very few upsides of the increased number in public visibility and the reporting around breaches is that this has moved from a technical conversation into the board level conversation. And we hear that more and more. I think what's interesting about that board level conversation is it's very much still evolving. What I hear a lot, for example, from general counsels is that they see liability everywhere, but they are uncertain about what that liability is and what is going to be sufficient to actually mitigate those concerns. They're like, do I have to be perfect on security? Because I don't think we're going to be. I've talked with my CISO and he says that's not possible. (laughs) So do you think that it takes being breached yourself or having um, another company in the same sector being breached? Or do you think that the general level of awareness just overall from media coverage and public discourse is going up? I think the overall level of awareness is going up, and that has driven a conversation into the most senior parts of companies. And so I think whether they are looking at differentiating based on security, and I am talking with companies about the ones who are going to be very successful in this space are thinking about security not as a due diligence set of requirements, but as part of an overall corporate strategy. You should be not looking at the data only in terms of protection, but also how you can use it to uh, evolve your market practices. So there's a longer conversation to be had. I think the companies that are doing that are going to be more successful. I will also say that 
you know, the increased conversation on the government side, even when it doesn't come down to specific regulatory requirements, also drives private sector action, right? They're like, you know, I want to get out in front of this. I want to know, you know, be prepared and be influencing the conversation that may come from regulators. And on the government side, I would say it's really now gotten into a place where I think the government understands that there is a very significant threat. And one of the things that is incentivizing and making it challenging is working across the equities. Um, I think not just the U.S. government, but all governments are very much so struggling to figure out how to deal with the horizontal integrated nature of cybersecurity. Their policy development functions oversight committees in Congress are all built around these verticals. And so I think they, they very much want to do something meaningful, but figuring out kind of what is my lane and then also making sure that in working to improve security, particularly domestically, there's a very strong angle on making sure that while doing that, you don't hinder or stifle innovation. And finding that right balance point is one of the reasons I think sometimes progress can be difficult. And so can we talk more specifically about Microsoft itself too? I mean, how do you see Microsoft's own attitude towards cybersecurity and reputation for cybersecurity changing in recent years? There was a recent New York Times article where Miko Hipponen, who works at F-Secura, finished at security company, said that Microsoft changed in recent years from worst in class to the best in class. So what do you think about that and what's behind that shift? So I love that question because it ties back to the first one of market incentives. So first of all, Microsoft made its very first kind of foundational shift in how it approached security, privacy, reliability, and transparency many, many years ago, about 13 years ago, when we started to see the viruses and worms that had well-known names, Code Red, Blaster, Slammer. Bill Gates sent out a memo called the Trustworthy Computing Memo, and it basically said, we're, we're going to kind of stop, stop coding for a while, and we're going to start making a new structured commitment to security. And that included a wide variety of things from secure development lifecycle, so how do you reduce the number and severity of vulnerabilities in code, to developing a better relationship with the security researcher community, so vulnerabilities would be sent to Microsoft as opposed to full disclosure that creates risk in the ecosystem. And then things like automatic update for consumers, how we would start, you know, basically patching machines. Um, and so that was this first if you will, innovation shift in security. What we have seen more recently and what Satya really mentioned in the article is some of the changes that are coming along with cloud computing and how we go from, how we've gone from being an organization who provided a product that was operated by someone else to being an organization that does that, but then also operates and provides the service and is a user and custodian of data. And so that required kind of another shift or innovation in our thinking on security. Some of those changes include things like operational security assessment. How do you manage a cloud? And then also a lot of what we hear in the privacy conversation, which isn't just around how do you protect data, but also gets to cultural values. I was and just going to say, you know, on a cultural level, what has it taken to have an organization as big as Microsoft to kind of make this shift into focusing on security and privacy? And we will get to some of the international aspects of this too, but just, you know, in the scope of your team and, and the bureaucracy that might be there, you know, what, what's that been like? 
And let me interrupt mm-hmm. for a sec. I think that's crucially important because you have a number of other companies in many ways entering the phase that Microsoft was in more than a decade back, which is happening with the Internet of Things. You have a, a number of companies that didn't used to visualize themselves as tech companies now needing to build that same kind of culture, whether they're making cars or refrigerators or whatever. Uh, so, you know, how do you build that culture and what are the lessons for other companies in this? So, so a couple of things. First of all, um, consistent with the previous change that was 13 years ago and what Satya has been driving now, it is a top-level down commitment to security that is sufficiently resourced to execute against it. That's that first really key piece. You have to have the buy-in from the top. I think Satya mentioned in that article, he's having these weekly discussions looking at what events are happening so that we can learn from them. Um, some of the other things, and, and this is, I would say, a cultural evolution that Microsoft is going through as a whole, is actually working really well across boundaries and bringing together the expertise that lives in various parts of the company to describe kind of what are the risks they're seeing, how are they addressing them, and exchanging and developing lessons learned across boundaries. When you say boundaries, you mean different parts of your company. What are some examples where, where you're seeing this collaboration now? Yeah, so you could think about it as across some of the different cloud services. How is Office 365 collaborating with Azure, collaborating with the folks who provide infrastructure as a service underneath there? Their dependencies between those cloud services, getting them to work together. Also then, having a great collaboration between people whose full-time jobs are security and then people who are doing security as part of their jobs. So I think it's it's overall uh, a degree, remember when I said governments can be challenged horizontally, it's that the companies who are doing this are actually starting to bring together experts and describe what should be done kind of in a shared service model and what should be done to address unique risk. So you've talked about the strategy within the company a broader issue of strategy is national cybersecurity strategy. And in many ways, there's an argument uh, that it's lagging, uh, that it needs to be updated. What's, what are your thoughts on this? And then also, what's the role of the private sector in influencing national cybersecurity strategy? Yes, yeah, so um, so I think that both, both the U.S. government and, and governments, as I said earlier, are really kind of struggling to move forward in an effective, strategic manner. That doesn't mean you don't have a lot of good component areas and people who are driving strategic elements. But I think when you look across a holistic plan, how is commerce working with the Department of Homeland Security, with DOD, with the intelligence community on all their equities? I think it is very complex to come forward with a full force strategy. I think that there are good examples. One of the things that is very helpful that I see the U.S. government doing and other governments doing is starting to publish their strategy. So it may actually only be like the DOD cyber strategy was one piece. Well, then, okay, I can look at that and I can look at that relative to the quadrennial Homeland Security Review and the cyber elements of that. But it hasn't yet really all come together in a holistic way. And again, that's not the USG, it's, it's governments around the world. Private sector has a really very important role in this just because we do have expertise in how the products and services are working. 
We have expertise and understanding of the pace of innovation cycles and how difficult it's going to be to align innovation cycles to policy cycles. Um, and so I think we have a lot of different roles that we can perform there. We are ultimately kind of the creators and protectors of technology, the defenders of technology, and the responders to that. So in the context of the public-private partnership that Microsoft does here domestically and in countries around the world, we're looking across those three lenses. What needs to be done in the protect function? How can each government, based on their approach to managing authorities, think about the role in protection? And detection and response. So in terms of the just the protection part of this, I mean, a big theme within the U.S. government strategy is how to deter attackers from striking. But at the same time, we've seen with big breaches like the OPM breach, for example, that the U.S. government is still working to put in place some pretty basic security measures for its own data. So do you think that there's tension in trying to have, you know, deterrence for other countries, and yet your security might be so weak that it's just kind of you know, there was testimony on the Hill where it was sort of, well, the door was sort of open for them anyway. Yeah, I think I think there is some challenges overall in building an effective deterrence strategy. There are pieces in play. And Sarah, you just happened to mention some very important parts here. So first of all, I think we do need to drive up the level of security across the government. Some people think about that as being in or out of scope of deterrence. I think about strong defenses, how you reduce you make it harder to attack or the consequences, the valuable thing at the other end, less valuable. That to me is a deterrent. Some the, people- the, the wonky way of describing it is called deterrence by denial. Exactly. You, you take away the incentives to attack if someone isn't going to get what they want out of the attack. Exactly. And so I think that's one of those 101 level. You have to do it before you can really even be super effective in other places. So why are they struggling so much to do this across the government? I think a couple of things. One- Procurement processes and strategy, basically the overall process to bring in technology does not incentivize security. And it also, the U.S. government hasn't gone through an infrastructure rationalization that most of corporate America had done uh, maybe somewhere in the last five to eight years. Each agency has their own CIO and they're performing their own functions. They're using a lot of legacy technology. There is a really great opportunity right now, I think, particularly to look at all the breaches and say, how do we want to transform acquisition and procurement? How do we want to have architectural strategies that enable change over time? That's a real key piece that I think there's a great opportunity to move forward here domestically on. This has been a very U.S.-centric discussion so far, and yet um, you're recently back, I understand, from trips to India as well as Japan. How do you see the state of affairs in cybersecurity there, and maybe particularly how it compares to some of the things we've been talking about? Yeah, so it, one of the, I think one of my favorite aspects of the job is getting to meet and understand and learn how different people, different cultures, and different governments think about these challenges. It's, it's very, very exciting. So in India, one of the things that is really interesting is they really see that technology was and will be a key driver of their economic enablement and the continuation of that over time. So that's the primary lens that things are being looked at. There is, of course, a national security conversation, but if you, if you unpack it and you say it the most basic construct, 
they're thinking about IT and how to do that to enable inclusiveness of their society in the digital age and continue to let India be an innovator and drive up their own development and innovation in country. And they recognize that security has to be done in order to do that. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of the lens that they're looking at it from. Um, in Japan, I think Japan is really interesting because they have the 2020 Olympics coming up. And so there is this recognition that they are a technology um, country writ large. They're also the second most attacked country in the world. And they have this world scale event mm. that will be technology enabled. And they're going to have to figure out how to do the security along with it. And so that's kind of the thing that I think is really exciting there. They're thinking about IoT and how to leverage that and the security implications of that in a more progressive way than I've seen a lot of different governments doing over time. What, what, when you say progressive, what are things they're doing that, that other governments can learn from? So first of all, I think when they're talking about IoT, there is some differentiation that it's not just one big, you know, it's kind of like cloud is always talked about as one big thing. <laughs> IoT is kind of also oftentimes talked about as just one big thing. <laughs> While there are variations of risk inside of that. There are life critical systems. There are systems that are not like that. So they've started to think about the relative risk mm -hmm. of different IoT capabilities and which capabilities they are going to need to drive to, again, demonstrate this leadership in like smart cities for the Olympics. And so that's kind of that key piece where they're not just like, oh, it's something we should think about, but it's really there's nuance in the risk, which functions are we going to need, and then very much so looking to see a combination of models to address those risks as opposed to saying we're going to be market-driven or we're going to be regulatory. They're like, I think I'm, there's going to be pieces for both here. That's interesting. And just to shift over to Europe, where privacy issues are front and center these days, uh, the European Union's highest court recently revoked a pact known as the Safe Harbor Agreement that allows thousands of businesses to transfer their personal data on European Union citizens to the U.S. And this move is has potentially huge implications on uh, both sides of the Atlantic. And meanwhile, negotiations are already underway for what some are calling Safe Harbor 2.0. I mean, what do you think? Do you think that the U.S. and Europe can come up with a bulletproof Safe Harbor 2.0 that can withstand privacy challenges in court? And what is Microsoft thinking in terms of, of the agreement itself? So, you know, I think the Safe Harbor and some of the other data protection challenges you see going on between the U.S. and Europe are things that are resolvable. But I think they have to be looked at in the context that privacy and data protection are not necessarily culturally viewed in the same way in those environments. And so you have to work to bridge that. I think the first thing is a recognition that they're not the same. So when you, when you look at things that we have done in Europe, um, we've not only used safe harbor, but we've built into our contracts these model clauses that the EU has come up with about how to protect data. Um, we're also doing a lot with regards to our data center strategy. Where do you build data centers? How can you assure that if a customer wants their information to stay within the boundaries of Europe, it can. But at the same time, you're, you're not saying that that's what has to be done. Mm -hmm. You're providing options and choice for customers. And that's where I think some of the negotiation is going to have to go into is recognizing some variability in understanding how to enable customer 
choice. Just last week, I mean, the company announced that it would create data centers in Germany to protect EU citizens' data. How does that affect your operations? And I mean, where does this kind of fit into where you think things are going in the future? Yeah, so the model that we put out in Germany is whether you have a data trustee. It's a trustee model. So we're in a partnership with Deutsche Telekom. And under that partnership, Deutsche Telekom maintains access to data and they're managing the jurisdictional aspects uh, consistent with German law. So sometimes when you hear about cloud, you hear about there's a public cloud model, a private cloud model, and a hybrid model. This is actually a fourth option in the set, a partner model, where you're partnering with a domestic provider such that you can help to address jurisdictional concerns. It doesn't mean that everyone will go down that road, but for customers who want that choice, this then provides them an option. Let's close out our discussion with a look at the human capital side of cybersecurity. There are estimates that the uh, worldwide shortage of information security workers is soon going to reach around 1.5 million. And yet within the current workforce, only about 10% are women. So one is, are are you surprised by this 10% number? And what are ways that we can improve diversity in this field? Um, so I guess I would say I'm not really surprised with the number, although it is it is moderately disappointing. My background, I went to engineering school, I worked as an engineer, and I'm sitting, you know, I work with engineers now. And so it has, from a gender-based perspective, typically been imbalanced towards more men than women. Doesn't matter what company I worked at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say it's it's disappointing. And one of the things I liked that you said, Peter, is you focused on diversity. And I like us to think about diversity in this field, not just being gender diversity, mm-hmm. racial diversity, or even age diversity, which also needs to be discussed when we're talking about these values and how they change around the world, but also experiential diversity and educational diversity. So very supportive and Microsoft does a lot of work in promoting STEM and I think that's super important. But at the same time, in the context of security, security is a combination of kind of science and art. And so I don't want us to get so mono-focused on STEM that we're not actually Mm -hmm. thinking about diversity from a broader perspective. That when you really get together, I judged a policy hackathon up at NYU last week was a lot of fun. But what we saw is the teams who did the best in developing approaches were multidisciplinary in nature. They had a technologist. They had a person who understands government. They had a person who's kind of in a legal background. And they had a person who understands market dynamics. And so I think that's one of the things that we really have to work on. And what I'd highlight there is there is a lot of work across the spectrum. I think we also need to start younger and help people understand that that cybersecurity can be a lot of different things. It's not just the coding side. You know, my profession is cybersecurity policy. I didn't know I was gonna go into that, but helping people understand that there are a lot of different paths and a lot of different expertise that could be not only welcome, but useful is a good message. I think that's a great way to end. Thanks so much for joining us. Really happy to have you. Oh, thank you so much. Please join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. You can subscribe to us on New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. And I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. 
And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasscode.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines. Talk to you in a month. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score, and Cold Killer. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.